What is in a worldview? And maybe even more importantly, what has a worldview? And honestly, as was already been brought up today, everything. One of my favorite words is Weltanschauung, German for worldview. And there's a tension with what do we interpret as truth and hold as our own experience, our experience of our own culture or other cultures. I started to wonder, really, is there anything that doesn't have a worldview? So as we listen to this piece of music, I invite us to quietly consider what comes to mind, likely images, other thoughts, maybe something else that has an emotional connotation, images came to mind? Shout them out. We heard a sun setting. Ooh. Ocean waves. Anything else? Snorkeling. Leaves falling. I had a clouds. I was up in the clouds in that one. And Nick, did you want to share what you were thinking of as you wrote it? The same experience, and so many diverse experiences of them. And we'll mention this a few times later throughout the service, but in any conversation, there's 11 million pieces of information, of which we absorb 40 to 50, and we're conscious of five to seven. That's a lot of room for worldviews, right? If you want to hear more about that, I'll be talking about that and using the source for that in our friendly form on the 28th. The simplification allows our worldview to tell us there are clear relationships, categories, symbols that represent what something is and what something is not. The problem is there are no distinct lines. The beauty, the joy, the growth is in that in-between as we discussed and talked about with Foucault and he lifted up in his work. The categorization of that full prismatic spectrum of light becomes Roy G. Biv, which you lose a lot in that reductionist perspective. And yet those symbols and labels allow us to communicate, to build collaboration in our world and community, even as they're inherently reductive. Representative communication embeds a worldview in the creator's worldviews, structures and systems reflect the place and time that they were created and, and or written down. And the embedded worldviews um, can be subtle or hard to see. Many systems are designed to be adapted, but worldview elements tend to be structural and more often than not they're worked around rather than really change. An example would be language, a series of commonly understood symbols 
And a symbol could really be anything. What people, places, things, concepts are represented by symbols? The number of words offered and how we use them to describe a forward nuance are all something that is part of a worldview of a culture and that it use, it creates and use that language. This language as a worldview, to go in depth, check out Planet Word in DC. It's a great interactive and multicultural museum experience. Some languages add detail with additional words to make really long and accurate words for things. Others freely blend with new languages, either adopting or, depending on the power balance, appropriating new words and concepts. Other languages make their own words for new things, preserving their sound and texture and feel. All different ways of representing the cultures that created those languages. What concepts have nuances, context, and several words can indicate something about, how, indicate aspects of that language. For example, I'm gonna use love. American Sign Language, you may have seen my hands during the song, um, I do sign a little bit, has two words for love. Love of actions and love of living beings. Tamil, a language from Sri Lanka, has at least five and maybe dozens language words for love. Spanish, querar, amar, and cantar, depending on friendly love, romantic love, or love of doing things. I love to study. Um, and actually, there's 96 Sanskrit words for love that, that I saw. Other colleagues have used similar descriptions with rain or snow in different regions where the languages, those are central core concepts for the culture. Many words with deep descriptions invite us into that in-between space, that space that allows us to release our ironclad grip on what is clear and distinct categories. Yes or no, this or that. I've learned to pause when I find that I'm thinking or saying a binary. Is that really true? It's often a false dichotomy. Even the Harvard Business Journal published that going from two options to three options is the most significant factor to increase a positive outcome. It really helps to have the words and the cultural awareness to be able to do just that. Labels, gender, race, medical diagnoses, they all take on the worldview of people or a society that create and describe them. Systemic study of diseases from the 1700s has very little resemblance with the World Health Organization's classification, international classification of diseases. The vast proliferation of options invites us into that in-between, describing our patients where they are. When others share word worldviews and threads that can allow rapid and efficient communication. It can make things a lot easier sometimes. After all, we only get five to seven pieces of data in, that, we can work, that we know we're working with. Common symbols and meaning making can support that communication, such as libraries. Libraries today are amazing. In truth, I have always loved libraries, but was once a community library with several hundred books is now a networked system that you can read, get books from around a state, thematically across the whole country. How is this possible? They use a classification system, either the Dewey Decimal System or the Library of Congress system. They're languages that make sharing this diversity of content possible. And yet, 
If you visit the history section of your local library, everything you see will be history. But do you notice what isn't there? Melvin Dewey was a known racist, misogynist, born in 1851, and invented the Dewey Decimal System as a 21-year-old white academic. During that time of eugenics, people were being ranked, classified across our culture. And the Library of Congress system has also has challenges that are similar and different. A group of student interns began to ask questions about how they were told to classify books. Histories in the 900s, social sciences in the 300s. Books about women, race, social justice, all end up in the 300s. What's described, in and it's described as how we view and see others. The 300 section is rich and diverse. Ida B. Wells, The Communist Manifesto, political books about black people, Hispanic people, anyone other than white, cis, heteronormative people are classified in how we interact with others in the 300s. That makes our history section about white men. There's a bookstore model that was considered and its own limitations, but this is one of the times that I'm gonna raise a question without an answer, because there is no way to describe any of us with one word. It ends up being something each cataloger has to address and librarian and wrestle with for their communities. Umbra Search seeks to promote African-American materials and make them as accessible as possible. It's based on the Library of Congress system, and a lead on the project used the term juvenile delinquents to be able to pull the terms, the book, books from the library. She also uses the subheadings of the description she'd prefer to use, which is youth interactions with the criminal justice system. And that's her workaround. Students from Dartmouth in 2016 got the Library of Congress to support a change of its classification terminology from illegal alien to non-citizens and unauthorized immigration. It didn't come to pass because the terminology is required to align with US code. Another lens, there are LGBTQIA plus sections. So if I'm holding a fiction book with a gay character, is it in general fiction or is it in that specific section? And does it matter as long as I can find the book? That's how systems beyond communities are really, have their worldview. Yes, it absolutely matters. When you're walking through the history section, there's 11 million pieces of information you can see. When you're walking through that fiction section, there's 11 million pieces of information. Ida B. Wells made history. Martin and Malcolm made history. Fiction includes characters who love in many ways because love is love and no human is illegal. We have to critique and challenge our systems and structures and communities for who is not represented, who is overlooked, excluded, defined out, because structural messaging shapes societal worldview. Those who aren't represented are faced with erasure, and those who are centered received unearned privilege. Now, beloveds, I love libraries. As I started, they're one of my favorite places. How to reform or change or adjust a system is a vital question. So many of our systems today are in reform as was lifted up in our joys and sorrows. 
reforming systems with embedded bias from bygone centuries is very important. And having the humility for an honest critique of ourselves and the systems we are building today is vital as well. What are those shadow effects? We must remain humble enough to ask, what worldviews are we embedding into our systems that we are creating? Remember the different images and thoughts from the music earlier? Those were the same things that affected, affected by our worldviews. In this liminal period, there are innumerable societal examples, but I'll limit myself to two at present. Timnit Gembru, a computer scientist and co-founder of the nonprofit organization Black in AI and the former co-lead for Google's ethical AI team. She was forced out for highlighting several of the risks of large AI language models, such as environmental impacts and the difficulty of finding embedded bias. Pulse oximetry is another example. It measures the oxygen in our blood. It's a vital measure of oxygenation in emergent situations and guides the timing of critical interventions. They were largely normalized to white-skinned fingers. In December 2020, a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found black patients had three times the occult hypoxemia, or low blood oxygen in their blood, than white patients. Worldview matters. And friends, it's impossible to build a structure without embedding our worldview. We have to do our own work and practice radical inclusion to share our sunglasses with others and see the world and learn how they see the world. We have to do um, build in critique and reform. We can and must look for who is not represented in our system and speak up and act to act who can center who is not there. How do we want to be centered? How do they want to be centered? The people who use the system have an obligation and opportunity to change them. Identifying and challenging dehumanizing terms for people, pathologizing terms for our beloved LGBTQIA family members and friends, and honoring the messy complexity of communities and what specific people, organizations, and communities would like to be called. This takes asking good questions. And questioning is something Unitarian Universalists excel at. Asking good questions means that knowing there's a worldview in everything, even math. There's a worldview in how many students are in a classroom. This is from dataequity.org. The artwork is mine. Um, well, this particular set. So if we were to average how many kids are in the classroom, there's three, six, and nine. That three plus six plus nine is 18. 18 divided by the three classrooms is six. For 30 years, this is how I knew to solve this problem. Dataequity.org taught me that there's another way to solve this problem, and we can center the worldview of the people who experience the system, the students. In which case, we get a value for every student. And I promise, when you add up all those values, they add up to 126, which if you divide that by the 18 students, is seven. Centering the teacher's worldview or the institution's and centering the student's worldview.
And if that makes your head hurt, I know. It blew my mind when I learned of data equity. And it's the same question and the same data. It's how we measure it that's the difference. The questions we ask matter. How we measure them matters. These can open discussions into that in-between or shut them down before they ever have a chance to start. Friends, we have to ask really good questions. When we think a system doesn't have a worldview, it probably just has a worldview that resonates with something we, own, we agree with. That's a great time to ask why. Who benefits? Whose voice is minimized in that worldview? And the way we consider the question, the measurement, and solutions matter. They matter deeply. So what happens when societal changes meet people who want things to stay the same? It's hard. In the wake of the movement for black lives, the Portland protest, to see police forces in Portland, New York, and Chicago expanding, key legislative efforts that strive to help us recover from this global pandemic stalled because, friends, there is no more before COVID times. It's gone. We have changed and will change. That does not mean that we can't have nice things and be together again. We will, and we will be changed. I find in conversation with people who are holding on to the worldview that was a challenge of comparison. For example, deciding to vaccinate and deciding not to vaccinate because we don't know the long-term effects of COVID. If the comparisons know COVID, well, that worldview is gone. The comparison that we're living is the wild disease. What we do, the meaning we make of that is up to us. But shifting that worldview changes the options we have. Deciding not to respond to climate change with action today because it's too expensive. Compare, is comparing the cost of those changes to a status quo that also doesn't exist. No action will perpetuate the climate changes we are currently experiencing. Desertification, storm destruction, mass migration, and changes that will become irreversible. There is no status quo option. Check out the 2021 Henry Bryna David Lecture by Dr. Michael Mendez for more. And that brings us to community. When we gather, we bring our concept of the divine, justice, and order of things. We bring our worldview. Our community has a worldview too. We whole, heard a representation of that earlier. We're open to the idea of truth and revelation as ongoing. We are never done learning. We are never done growing. A few weeks ago, we talked about doubt and wonder. Foucault's work in changing societies. And for those who choose to explore the motion of changing societies, it can be like a dance moving with the world. And such a dance can transform doubt into wonder with action and connections to our heart as we grow in our new ways of being. Our society's worldview is changing. And some will resist that change and hold on to worldviews of the past with comforting nostalgia. Others will turn from the 
past worldviews with relief because it never represented their experiences. And some will choose to dance as the ground moves under their feet, wheels, or hands on the flows of change. I've talked about big and heavy, hard things today, and they're all changing and changeable. There are so many hands in this work. We do not do this work alone. As Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I ask you, beloveds, how will you choose to, ch to live through this transformative time? Will you dance? Give you one final example of this uh, worldviews that Catherine's been um, sharing about us that's quite important. Uh, so this comes from James Fowler. Some of you may know his work on stages of faith. So he invites us to consider, uh, he has six examples. I'll give you three very quick ones. You mentioned three is a helpful number of, of choices. So he says, you know, most of us grow up and at some point in the way we are religious, or some folks grow up fairly non-religious, which is fine too, but he says often people in sort of late childhood, early adolescence have what is sometimes called synthetic conventional religion. Fowler has, you know, kind of fancy pants words for these, these stages, but what he means by that is people tend to have an external locus or source of authority, so they're synthesizing the conventions around them. His big phrase here is, when I see you seeing me, I construct the me I think you see. You, you ever gone through that? No, not who I actually am. I construct the me I think you see. So we could talk a lot more about that. But at some, some people stay in synthetic conventional their whole life. It's sort of a religious arrested development. But there is the opportunity. I'm sorry, it's just true. I don't know. Uh, the, um, I don't know. It's true. Uh, truth hurts sometimes. Uh, then the, uh, so there's an opportunity though to shift from synthetic conventional to what is called individuative reflective. So that's to say you, you, you change from your source of authority being just external to inside yourself and you begin to do what Jung called individuate. And you know, what do I really believe for myself outside of external stuff? That can also go too far into kind of a, you know, there's a thin line with adolescent rebellion between being set free and being cast adrift. So we can talk a lot more about all of that as well. Uh, and there's an opportunity to go further still uh, into what is sometimes called conjunctive faith. Uh, if any of you remember that M. Scott Peck book, um, The Road Less Traveled, he talked about the and, A-N-D, being the holy conjunction. Instead of either or, can you see both and, and, and to hold things in tension. They're not just problems to be solved, but you know, tensions to be held. So I think that's what some of us are, you know, kind of trying to find our place in this, this both-and place, this kind of irresolvable tensions, and, and how do we live well in that tension, so we're not just going to find some simple solutions. So I, I leave that with you, but to literally think how the world didn't change with any of those worldviews, and there's simultaneously always people in the world that are synthetic, conventional, and individual reflective, and conjunctive, and mythic literal, and universalizing, and all these different ways. The world's the same. We don't just see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. So you can spend some time, and a lot to say about all that, but I appreciate Catherine inviting us to think about worldviews this morning. And so we do have choice about how we see and experience in the world, and for that reason, may you continue your journey with love. You really can choose love. 
Continue your journey with love. Care for one another. Choose to care for this one earth, to do justice, to make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We are different for having spent this time together. We'll experience one another, experience the world differently. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.